the, the problem is being loving. And for loving for a man is to correct. And to correct in such a way like you know that there's some importance to this. And the importance is Christ died on the cross. Christ went to a, a death that we can't comprehend. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for your truth. Lord, the truth we know does not originate with us. We think it does, we act like it does, we push it on other people like we, like we believe that it does start with us, but it doesn't. We're in the dark, we're born in the dark, we're born in the darkness of sin, the blindness that covers the eyes like people who have a veil over their face, like Paul who had to have the, the scales removed when he met Jesus on the road. Falling down, he just said, heard the voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he, he was persecuting the church. Jesus makes his oneness with the church known, and we understand, dear Lord, that you are one in the church, one with the church through the working of the Holy Spirit. And in that working, the truth is delivered so far as your people walk in humility of spirit, and acknowledge that the truth does not begin with us, but it begins with you. So we need to study carefully your word. We need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit, not by trusting in men and exalting men. And that, Lord, is our ruin. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would enable us fall down upon the church today in America, fall down upon us so that we are not distorting the truth by trusting in ourselves and in other men of great learning when learning is only good so far as men are humble, acknowledging that you are the source of truth. Let that be known even in this message today. I ask it in Jesus' name. For your honor and your glory. Amen. So the episode we're looking at today is episode 71, Speak the Truth in Love. I've heard that so many times. I mean, it's just over and over. And the question that crosses my mind nowadays is like, what does that mean? Speak the truth in love. And I'm not trying to be sarcastic in this. I'm not trying to be stupid about this question. I mean, but really, in anything that we say, in any one at time when we try to communicate to others, and we're going to use this saying, speak the truth in love. It has within it, as in everything that we know as human beings, preconceived ideas, things that we've been told, things that we've assumed, things that we've been, we've been taught through all variety of different people in our life, and it makes up what we believe. Maybe a dictionary definition of a word. In part, all these parts coming together, so then we hear, speak the truth in love. What does that mean biblically? What does that mean as God speaks to us from his word and explains what speak in the truth in love means? That's where I want to go today. That's what, what I want to see explained. I'm going to start with a question which has nothing to do with that, but we'll catch up very quickly. Why are we here? And I'm going to answer that quickly to say we are here because God said so. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. The beginning of what? The beginning of everything that's not God, that's been created from nothing by God, for a specific reason. We are here, men and women, men, mankind, for a purpose, and that purpose starts with, in the beginning, God. God. He was first. He gets the final say. He has all the authority. He has all the power. He's got everything. We got nothing, except what he gives us. 
So let's stay, let's start and stay in a humble place. What's the plan? Okay, so the the eternal and unchanging God did something new. And there's a plan behind it, but he did something new. First, then God said in Genesis 1:26, let us, the Trinity, make man in our plural image, according to our likeness, and let them rule. Genesis 1:26. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule. So speaking of mankind in general, and at that moment in time, he was making Adam, and then from Adam he would make Eve. It starts with one man, and then it goes on from there, but now you have the means of a race, which would come from Adam and Eve, and procreation. Secondly, so God created man, singular, in his own image. And this is 127. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we have three times the word them used, meaning Adam and Eve, and he's, crea- and he's referring to man. God created man in his own image, and the word is Adam, which he then names him Adam because he's man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, coming of Eve. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule. So you have this man singular, and you have this man plural, them, them, them. Be fruitful and multiply. He then goes on in chapter 2 of Genesis, and we read this in 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh, first operation, at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman. This is, he's making this into a woman, the rib. From the rib, he's making the woman by which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, this is top of the genetic code. This is the supreme man and woman created good in the day in which they were created. I mean, this is as good as you're going to get in innocence, that Adam and Eve were created. The rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Why at last? Because he did all the naming of all the animals and he's looking and he's looking and he's looking and like there's nobody suited for me. I mean, I'm not seeing a resemblance of me. I'm not seeing someone that looks like me, acts like me, talks like me, that can talk. At last, a woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So he's looking for someone like himself. And we're not, don't have sex in mind here. You know, when people make jokes, that's not what's going on here. Yes, the propagation of the race is in God's mind, but Adam is alone, just lonely. And let's just put impulses aside. There's like no woman. There's like, what's he looking for? He's looking for someone like himself. And, he, and God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he creates one like, you know, that every creature multiplies like according to the likeness of themselves, an animal, a dog, a dog, a bear, a bear, a chicken, a chicken, they them, like them. And, and so here's Adam and Eve, and he's finally finding someone, not primarily for sex, he's finding someone with whom he can communicate, he can find brotherhood, sisterhood, he can, he can find completeness, he can find someone to talk to, not be alone. It's about not being alone. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now it goes on to the next step in 24. 
after he's made complete by someone being like him, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now there's unity. Now there's a union that takes place that's creative. Through that unity, there becomes, and it's, the unity is not, again, just about sex. It's about a unity of mind and soul and spirit, and that they're of one heart. I mean, that's really behind all of this in the plan of God. This is before sin comes in. It complicates all of this. Sin is not there. This isn't about lust and desire and lustful desire. It's not present. They hadn't sinned yet. They were good in God's sight. Remove all of that from this, this text right now. It didn't, it didn't happen yet. It was not present. So the plan involved creating a man and a woman through procreation. An entire race would come to be. And the race has two distinct and different sides to it, but they're the same. Number one, the man is responsible to God with masculine attributes. The woman is responsible to God with feminine attributes. Now, this was there before sin entered. A man is a man and a, ma a woman is a woman. They were going to rule together. But they're, they're made different right from the beginning. It didn't happen they weren't made man and woman after sin. They were made man and woman before sin. This is really important. So a man has these attributes of thinking through reason, primarily, not alone. Both men and women do all these things. But the, the, the attribute that stands first for a man is reason, then compassion. Uh, being able to protect and provide for. No reason to protect before sin came in, but there's this provision and, and tilling the soil and working in the garden, all of which took place before even even came into view. And so that's who man is. But then comes the feminine aspect with her nurturing and her love and her kindness that's going to be put into the children. This is the way it was created before sin ever appeared. So they were to work together as a team, and the team relying on their own counsel was lost, and a new race was created, and that was after sin came into being. But they were a team relying on their own counsel only after sin came in. Before, it was relying on the counsel of God. So the evidence of a new race is in their, their unity, or the, the old race, really, prior to sin. What does the plan cost? An end to itself, will, and self-effort would be the new race. But there's this self-will and this, this self-effort that came in at, at the, the fall in the garden in which they no longer relied on God, but they relied on what the devil said first, and we became a product of his lies, and that's been a plague on humanity ever since. Um, but it begins with repentance and faith, or rebirth, in the new God. That's the new race. There's the old race in Adam, you can see this in Romans 5 very clearly. There's the old race in Adam, and there's the new race in Christ. This identification is so important. I mean, it's just beyond saying what important is. I mean, you've got justification by faith alone, and you've got sanctification, you've got glorification. You've got all of these doctrines as they're uploaded into our minds from the book of Romans. But then you have identification, which is not stressed enough. Well, I don't even think it was stressed at the Reformation, the way it could have been. And I'm not criticizing them. I mean, God blessed them, and God used them, and they were brilliant men, and they were spirit-filled men, and all of that is true. I'm just saying from what, I, what is present in the Bible concerning identification in, from Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, and all throughout the New Testament, it is a huge and partially overlooked doctrine of the Bible, and that's identification with Christ. Every time you see the word in, just go through Ephesians chapter 1, and every single phrase in the very first part of that chapter 
which is almost the whole of the chapter. It's in, 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 in. In the beloved, in Christ, in, in, in. And that's identification with Christ. And it's all throughout the New Testament. That little word in. We're in Christ. We're in Him. We're lost in Him. We're found in Him. It continues through repentance and faith. Galatians 2.20 I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. What, what is that? That's identification. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. Yet not I but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a lostness of who I am, who I would be in the sinful flesh, but a new in, a new me, who lives in Christ, raised from the dead, put to death on the cross. And in this life, throughout this life, put to death on on the cross, as we focus our identity in Christ, having died with him, raised with him from the grave, and there's a new creation. Uh, I am, there's, old things are passing away. Oh, behold, all things are becoming new. I'm a new creation. This is huge. The closing verse from each chapter as a crescendo, and this is uh, the book of Corinthians, as a crescendo, is used to focus on the importance of the message and place it in perspective of a masculine, responsible man who speaks out as a man and not as an effeminate man who looks and sounds like a woman. Now that statement actually is not just about 1 Corinthians, but it's about the, the New Testament. This is I'm speaking like from the New Testament. Where, and and, and this, where is this coming from? It's coming from this. Which book of the Bible was written by a man? I was talking yesterday with someone, and we were talking about uh, where the Jewish line, where you know where it, how it is formed, and they were saying as Jewish, there was two ladies there, and they both said the same thing, it's through the woman's line. And I said, well, that might be good traditionally or what's taught traditionally through the Jews today, um, but biblically, that's wrong. And she was looking at me like, you know, waiting for proof. And I, I said to her, when you look at the genealogies of the Bible, which genealogy is woman? And she's looking like, and she's thinking, it's like, and I said, you're not going to find one. And she said, I thought, I was wondering if that was a trick question, because I can't off the top of my head think of one. And if you search the Bible and search and search, you will never find it through the woman. You only find it through the man. You know, in Adam all sinned, in Christ all are made alive. It's men. It's men. So you got the genealogies all about men. And who wrote the Bible? Now look, I'm not saying these things to offend women. And I'm not saying these things to say that men are better than women. I just explained from creation that it was never that way. That you, you have men and you have women and it's them. And together they would rule. And it's all about mankind through man and woman, it's, it's not one greater than the other. Now, sin changed, not that concept, but how the consequences would fall on the man and how the consequences fell on the woman and what implications that has. And that can't be avoided. Man was going to till, he was going to work, his plight was in the field, and woman was in the home. He's suited for the field. He's made strong to hunt and to do all of those things physically, and a woman can do them to some extent, but there's a difference. Men are naturally more muscular. Women are naturally more nurturing. I mean, you can, I know in our day and age that, you know, oh, you can't say it, but the reality is that's the way it is. I mean, unless a doctor comes along and starts changing the physiology, unless a doctor comes along and starts messing with genetics and or whatever they do with hormones and all, unless they do that, you got a man and you got a woman. From birth, that's what you got. There's variations in that, minimal, minimal variations, and some of that's affected by the sin issue. But you have men and you have women. But the Bible is written by men. Why? Let me read it again. The closing verse from each chapter as a crescendo is used to focus on the importance of the message, which that's just in writing, 
and place it in the perspective of a masculine, responsible man who speaks out as a man and not an effeminate man who looks and sounds like a woman. Just go with that statement. First Timothy 2, 11 through 15. You know what it says? It says, A woman must quietly receive, receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But, here's, here's Paul, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over the man, but to remain quiet. And then he gives a bi biblical reason. Why would he say anything else when the Bible is saying that? That's, that's a question. And the answer is, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. But when women will be but women will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. Faith is the issue here by which all people are saved. Childbirth is what women are called to do. They're, they're called to give birth to children and to nurture and care for those children as women are. That, you know, if a woman behaves like a woman is meant to, that means she's living up to the faith that has saved her. When we distort that, man or woman, when we distort that through sin, that's showing evidence that we may not be saved. No matter what we say with our mouth, no matter how we claim, I receive Jesus, I receive Jesus. Well, what does your life look like? In this case, speaking about the woman, when the woman does what she's called to do, in a way she's called to do it, for the honor and glory of God Almighty, then she gives evidence of her saving faith. That's all that's being said there. But it's in the home, and it's through childbirth, and it's for the children. Not that men aren't to be involved. This is just about, you know, uh, what comes first to the man and what comes first to the woman. And there was a deception that took place. And the man most likely did what he did more for the woman than he did it in believing what the devil said. He didn't. She believed the devil, she was deceived, and he, she gave it to the man, and the man took it. So then the, the, the consequences fall upon the man that he's, his primary responsibility is to be responsible, to be a lead, where he doesn't say to, to the woman, what are you doing? Do, you know, first of all, do not listen, do not take from this fruit, no matter what. God said this, don't do it. I mean, we don't really hear Adam doing any of that. He was irresponsible. And then that irresponsibility, which obviously wasn't sin up to that point, but it, was, it wasn't forthright, and we don't hear him say, God say to the man, tell the woman. Uh, so there's a lot of variables here. Uh, and God knows, and God brought judgment upon the man when he ate from the fruit, which the woman gave him. So there is this element of responsibility and there's this woman place where the woman who is made second should be listening first to the man, not this serpent in the garden. Whatever it may have looked like, no matter what it sounded like or what it said. So you have deception and you have irresponsibility or you have man catering to the wife. Now he's not supposed to be a woman. Let's go on in this. Therefore, this, the first qualification of an overseer, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, is he be a man, as only a man can be a husband of one wife. Verse 2, an overseer must be, above reproach, the husband of one wife. He must be a husband, and he must be a man, and as a man, he must not be an effeminate man. He must be a man who stands on principle and he's willing to give his life for it. He must be a man who speaks like a man. He doesn't speak. Now, men and women speak different. I'm going to bring that out. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 36 says this. Here's the consistency of the Bible. And I'm, I'm not even beginning to approach the consistency of all. I don't have time for that. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 36, it says, And in all the churches of the saints... The women are to keep silent in the churches. And that just means that, keep silent. 
It means covered up, hidden. It's like out of the way. It's just you're not, they're not in view as being the primary speaker. They're not preaching. They're not teaching. They're not teaching men. They can be teaching women. And this comes clear. For it says, for they are not permitted to speak, but to be subject themselves, just as the law also says. And by the way, he's going even back to the law for this. Women are not to teach in 1 Timothy 2 or exercise authority over a man. Now he keeps consistent with that by saying the women are to keep silent in the church. This is the gathering. This isn't a man speaking to a woman and things can go back and forth. And This is at the assembly. This is in the church. To keep silent in the assembly in the church for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the law says, quote, or verse 35, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own, and the emphasis here in the Greek is on their own husbands, not husbands, but on their own husbands at home. For it is improper, it is improper for a woman to speak in church. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church, in the assembly. Or was it from you the word of God first went out, or has it come to you only? Now look, this is the main point. And this is where the end of the passage is kind of concluded with a sarcastic. And sarcasm is something that you're looking down on someone else. Women don't do that. Women are very, very careful not to be sarcastic, not to offend, not to look down on other people. Men are not so careful. Now, sometimes it's sinful, sometimes it's not. Here it's not. This is the Apostle Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, inspired by God to speak God's word so that God is heard. This is the word of God, not the word of Paul. This is God speaking. How does God speak? Now, he's speaking through Paul. And he used Paul as a man to say these things. And Paul was not being sinful by doing it. Let's keep the record straight. So he says, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the assembly. Or was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Have you asked a woman, would you say that? Which I have been doing. No, that's a little too offensive. Most women are going to say that. Now, you got women affected by sin that might speak like a man, just like a woman isn't. A man isn't supposed to speak like a woman. A woman isn't supposed to speak like a man. Naturally, from God, there's a way that we are made. That's what the point is here. Or, this is what Paul says to them, was it from you that the word of God first went out? In other words, so the word of God came from you, And so you know what you're talking about, and you're going to say it's okay for a woman to speak in church. You know, that's where they go with this. Oh, you know, Paul was was, some kind of woman hater. He's speaking for God, okay? He's not speaking for himself. And he speaks with sarcasm because he knows the way these Corinthians were. And people are just like that today. Did this come from you? No, this is according to the law of God. And then the second question, or has it come to you only? That's even better. This is sarcasm. It's dripping with sarcasm. And Paul is speaking like a man, not a sinful man. He's speaking like a man. I wish we had more men in the church today who would, you know, oh, I can't be offensive. If I'm offensive, I'm not loving. Speak the truth in love. Wait, we're going to get there. Here's Paul speaking like a man, a loving man. And he wants to put people in their place. And we need to be put in our place. If I could go back in time to how I was when I was young, really young, I would put a whooping on me like, oh, man, why? Because I really needed it. I needed to get things straight. I knew, wake up. Wake up. I don't say that to people, but I really feel it sometimes. I try to be kind. We should, we should try to be as nice as we can while being a man, if we're a man. If you're a woman, speak like a woman. And I mean that. I'm not asking any woman to speak like this. You're not made that way. Women are loving, nurturing, caring. They care not to offend. Be a woman. Just don't ask men to be men, to be women too. And men should not ask men to be women. 
They should have them to be men. I'm saying these things out of love. I don't, it doesn't matter if you, you don't think I am because I'm not speaking like a woman. Paul wasn't either. Keep silent means hold one's peace. Be concealed. Secret in silence. That's the woman's place in the assembly. In the assembly. Not everywhere else. There's, I've learned, learned so much things for women and I regard women as equals and I learn actually I regard women as more than equals in, in, in the feminine side. I'm learning this all the time where I am, where it's all women. And it's mostly only me for now. I'm, I'm gaining more men. You know, but, the, but the fact is women speak a certain way that I can learn from, not to effeminate me, but how to be kind, how to be you know, with all the way women are. And I can incorporate that in the way I am as long as I don't cross the line and effeminate myself. Why should a woman keep silent out of humility? Every teacher, pastor, overseer, shepherd must remain humble regardless of how learned they may become. Why should a woman keep silent? Out of humility. Out of humility, a man is to pastor. Not hoarding it over anybody, including women. Not taking some view that we're different, we're better. That's not the point. We're different, but we're not better. We're made a certain way. Paul chided the Corinthians. Would a woman speak in this way? A woman would not speak you know, in this, the way he closes that passage, which was that the word of God come from you first. Again, a woman would not chide another person in such a way because it is too provocative. And women are far too sensitive to other people's feelings. The problem lies in the fact that feelings do not outweigh the need to correct a Christian living in disobedience to Christ. See, that's... That's, not, that's the problem of becoming effeminate. The, the problem is being loving. And for loving for a man is to correct. And to correct in such a way like you know that there's some importance to this. And the importance is Christ died on the cross. Christ went to a, a death that we can't comprehend. He suffered eternity to save us from eternity in hell. How long do people go to eternity? Forever. What does it say in Revelation? Is it thrown into the lake of fire? Forever. It's never going to end. They don't come out of the lake of fire. They go in the lake of fire and they stay there forever. Demons? I mean, those are beings too, you know. There's godly angels. And there's a third. They're ungodly angels and they suffer the fires. And Christ suffered the fire not for angels, but for us. And we have a duty, a responsibility that's so far above our head that we don't change anything, including that men should be men. If Jesus did not go to his cross, a cross that only God could carry, if he had not died an eternal death to pay the price for our sins, that would take us an eternity for which to atone for. If he had not done that, you know, we might allow some slack. We might like be more easily spoken. We wouldn't be, and we're not today, like the men of the Great Awakening who, sang, who preached things like sinners in the hands of an angry God. A woman is not going to preach sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's just not going to happen. God did not make them that way. They're not meant to do that, but men are. Jonathan Edwards was doing exactly what God told him to do. And all the men of that era, now they could bring love at the cross and forgiveness and mercy and with the backdrop of hell and condemnation and sin made it look all that much brighter. But you know, it's hardly a dim light anymore because there is no backdrop of sin. There is no condemnation. There's no hell because it's never preached because men are not men. Why do men, why are, are men, women to keep silent? Why are men to do what they do? Because men are not only to do it humbly, but they're now to do it out of a, obedience to God. Ephesians chapter 5, wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands. Same kind of thing. Your own husbands. There's this, this, this devotion, this unity, union that takes place 
in marriage when a man cleaves to his wife, having left his father and his mother. Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. I know this kills women in a effeminate world and of where the feminist movement and all that's gone on there. If you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, just listen to what the Bible says and understand that this comes from God. It doesn't come from me. It didn't come from Paul. It came through Paul, but it came from God. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. Now, either Christ is head of the church, and he's the one who gives direction, or the church is the head of itself, which means it's disobedient and sin. He himself being savior of the body. The church didn't save itself. We don't save ourselves. That's impossible. You're not going to work your way to heaven, not by the works of the, of the righteousness of the law, not by the works of righteousness did anybody get saved, Peter said. By his blood saved us. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, I'm not talking about a, an unsaved husband who's living a licentious, ungodly life. We're not, I'm not, that's not what's being said here. First of all, we're supposed to be married within the faith. If a, people get married and one gets saved and one doesn't, and, uh, it, you know, if, it, yeah, if that situation arises, we're not talking to condemnation. I'm not talking to that at all. And I'm talking that's a very hard place for a husband or a wife to be living. And here in the case of the wife, I'm not, that's a whole different situation. A woman is to be obedient to Christ in a loving way. And if the husband won't accept it, and if the husband wants to leave, you let him leave. And if the husband won't leave and he stays and he's not abusive and going to kill his wife and and all of that situation, and and if the wife can get along, then that's what she does. So far as it's not being disobedient to Christ. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be their own husbands in everything. Does that mean the husband's always right? I'm not really talking to that. I'm just quoting scripture right now. I mean, that could take a very long conversation. We would have to deal scripturally with all of those uh, avenues that we could go. But in obedience, the wife becomes an illustration of subjection. Subject means uniquely one's own. That's what it is. Uniquely one's own. The, the wife belongs to the husband as the husband belongs to the wife in their relative roles. Peculiar to the individual. So subject means uniquely her husband's. Subject to him. And this is, lays low the reach of pastors. Pastors don't get into people's lives. They prophesy the word of God and the word of God only, and that's as far as their responsibility and their authority goes. Beyond that, everything re remains in the will and the obedience of the individual Christian. Thou shalt not commit adultery, fine. Teaching the scriptures like I'm doing now. But I'm not going to give anybody counsel. I'm not going to tell them to do anything outside of what this is saying right here. You do what you do, what you're led to do as an individual, not according to any pastor's whims. That's outside of the preview of their authority. The emph emphatic adjective means private and personal. Therefore, as the Christian woman is subject to her own husband, she illustrates how the church should be subject in a personal way to Jesus Christ. If it's not personal, if it's not intimate, if it's not close, you're not saved, or you're not acting like you're saved. Because that's what this means. Verse 24 concludes by saying, in everything. Never does the Christian have authority to overrule God's word, God's leading in their life, the Holy Spirit, and thereby become disobedient to Christ. Instead, the Christian must always be subject to Christ by keeping the moral law. There's the traditions that were given to Israel to keep them separate from the lands around them. That's not the law that this is that I'm speaking of right now. The moral, thou shalt not commit adultery. Moral law. Ten commandments as a basic idea and then elaborated uh, in the teachings through 
uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy and the prophets and all what the law means. As a wife becomes one flesh with her husband, even so Christians become one flesh with Christ. With Christ. The wife is to be subject in a personal way to her husband. In the garden, mankind committed adultery with the devil and become unfaithful and became unfaithful to God our Father. We became, you know, the, the, our Father became the devil, just what Jesus said to the Pharisees in his day. You are of your father the devil. In what way? Because we listened and we got committed to sin through his deceptions and in that way. We became deceived. And we follow that, that rule of self-will and self-effort. The answer to what should be the voice of the church is a male voice. Why? There is a way of speaking that is natural to a man, but is unnatural to a woman. And most definitely unnatural to a mature, godly Christian woman. Christian woman knows how to speak for God, knows how to speak subject to God, knows how to live subject to God, and she speaks accordingly the way God made her to speak. And she never glorifies God more than when she speaks like a woman. And again, just don't tell a man to be the same. And men don't tell women to be like a man. It doesn't work. 1 Corinthians 1, 12, and 13 says this, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am a with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see the, the way he's talking. He's talking like a man. Uh, has Christ been divided? You see, that's, there's a very negative. That's not very loving in that sense. But, you know, we accept it, well, it's the Bible, and we just overlook it, and then we go to the passages that we want to to say how men should talk. Well, this is how a man talked. Representing God filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 1, 20, 21. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now, <laughs> when you say something like this, where is the wise person? Like, is there anybody? Where are they? You've just killed everybody. You just slew everybody as fools. Where's the scribe? Where's someone who knows the scripture? Like, where's the debater? Like, where's the philosopher? He's killing everybody here. Oh, this is God speaking. Yeah, but Paul was writing to a church, okay? Don't, don't tell me Paul was writing. God was writing. Paul wrote this. So this is a man speaking, a real flesh and blood man who had a history but was forgiven but was then raised to an apostle who he could speak to churches. And this goes for everyone who speaks for God, whether it's Isaiah or any of the prophets. I mean, why did they stick Isaiah in the hollow of a tree and then cut it in half? Was it because he was a mean-spirited jerk? Or was he because he was telling the truth? And I'm sure he spoke like a man. I mean, just got to do is read Isaiah, and you can tell he spoke like a man. So that's 20 and 21. Uh, has, God not, not, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? I mean, he's calling them all fools. World, the whole world is full of, full of fools. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, they're ignorant, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Who thinks it's foolish? Foolish people. Only a fool would consider what God says as foolish. This is the way a man speaks. Paul, by asking four very pointed and demeaning questions and following them up with the wisdom of God, trashed the entire world. He did. And called the entirety of it foolish. No woman, as she is made in the image of God, to re reflect subjection, sensitivity, forbearance, kindness, patience, gentleness, and a nurturing spirit would ever speak to others in the way Paul did. 
I mean, it's, a, it's offensive to women to even hear it. So why should a woman be taught by her own husband? Because when she reads the Bible, um, until she really starts to think like God and accept the fact that man was made in the image of God and man speaks like God meant him to, and preaching, unless she, until she gets to that place, she's going to have trouble with the Bible. She will. However, God does, and godly men who have not become effeminate through association with our present culture and the current thinking of the world system in the West, would ever say or even think such things. They would, such sarcasm does not mean that Paul, speaking by inspiration of God, was not speaking in love. Doesn't mean that. God speaks in love in everything he does. He's just able to balance it off with righteousness, which we're not good at, particularly in our culture and at this time. It means Paul spoke as a man should by not putting feelings over misbehavior that needed to be openly rebuked. Openly rebuked. Instead, he openly criticized the entire church and in so doing demanded their repentance and faith. He would save them from building the church with wood, hay, and stubble at best, only to watch it burn up in the judgment scene of Christ or be lost at worst. 1 Corinthians 26 to 21. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, there, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. That, so that no human may boast before God. He's shaming people. I mean, I heard a psychologist talking to the woman I was with. And it was a class, you know, it was just, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. No shame, no shame, no shame, no shame. God, what's he use? Shame, 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 shame. What a godly preacher is supposed to do? Preach the word. And if God is shaming people, what does a godly preacher do? He shames people. And I'm going to be told by a modern psychologist that this is wrong. Why is he doing it? So that no human may boast. What do we all do? Why do we go to hell? We go to hell because of pride. We won't listen to reason. Because we, we, we should be shamed. I, I just this week, I had somebody tell me that hypocrisy was condemning other people. And that's the view of what a, a, a hypocrite is. And they live in, an, in a state where there's a vast array of, of churches that in their minds are hypocritical because, and, and the pastor's, I'm not going to speak for all the pastors, but there's a large number of pastors that don't speak plain. And he goes on in verses 29, he says, But it, it is due him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that just as it was written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Look, in this section of Scripture, Paul continues to write to his brothers and will continue in the same way for 16 chapters. He trashes those who walk in the flesh and not as spiritual men, born again by the Spirit of God in a God-made humility. He criticizes not just fleshly living, but all the wise, strong, noble, significant people of the world in order to bring them to the truth as, an, as it must be in humility before God. What should be the voice of the church? First and primarily, the voice should be that of a man. Men naturally speak of judgment, justice, righteousness, discipline. It is used to be spoken. It is used to be spoken by women. Wait till your father gets home. I heard that. Wait till your father gets home. Honor, respect, and dignity comes from the man. Primarily, not totally, not completely. On the other hand, women speak to the language of kindness, forbearance, grace, empathy, sympathy, patience, love. The man is wired to prioritize justice and judgment. The woman is wired 
to prioritize mercy. What does James tell us? 2.13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy, Elias. Covenant, <clears throat> covenant loyalty, covenant love. In the Old Testament, over 170 times mercy as it is defined by loyalty to God's covenant. The Old Testament covenant was to keep the law and live. The New Testament covenant is that God in Christ lived out an obedient life, died in our place so that he might show us mercy by rising from the dead and living out his law written in our hearts through him by the Holy Spirit. Triumphs. Mercy triumphs. The word is kata oxamai. Kata, according to, down to the point, intensifying and intensifies koxamai. Boast, speak loudly. Overexalting one thing at the expense of another, which results in wrong conclusions. That unjustifiably downgrade by boasting with a sense of false superiority. Judgment, crisis, to separate, distinguish judgment, emphasizing its qualitative aspect that can apply either to a positive verdict or, more commonly, a negative verdict, which condemns the nature of sin that brings it on. The question now arrives, which comes first, truth or love? And which one dominates? So that mercy passage is, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment in that it is loyal to the covenant and the law of God. It triumphs. It does not, it's not boastful as men are. It's godly. But the question does arise, and we're going to finish on this. Which comes first, truth or love, and which one dominates? How many times we have heard, speak the truth in love? So we finish in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastors, teachers. Our English version translates the definite article as some. There's, there's no definite article there. There's no quantity indicated in the verse. So it could be a few elders or thousands of people, or it could be a shepherd or, uh, for every ten. No quantity supplied. We must look to Scripture for our conclusion. We know that there are only 12 apostles. That's done. There's only 12 foundations on the New Jerusalem. For the, and, and these men are supplied what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. It's the saints, not just a few elders, who do the work of ser- service to the building up of the body of Christ. See, we're, we're bringing down that which is high and we're bringing up that which is low. We're bringing down the shepherds and the elders and the leaders and we're bringing up the congregation. Boy, does that need to be done today. The work of service is not for those mentioned in verse 11. There should be no sitting on one's hands for the body of Christ. And then pastors go around pulling their hair out. I can't get them to move. Okay, well, just bring yourself down in order to bring them up. Christ died for all, so all are accountable for living godly and working for the salvation of all the lost. Nobody gets a free ride. Oh, well, I don't have this gift. That's not the way it works. But at the same time, there's no place for pride in ministry. Speaking to pastors now. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, that's personal, knowledge of the Son of God, personal knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's nothing half-hearted in any of this verse 13. Nothing like, just let it go, you know, it's not talking about perfection. Just let's read it like it is. And this is talking about now, not heaven. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. First of all, is that possible? That's impossible. Everybody's thinking it. It's not. Not among believers. And I'm not just in a local church. I'm among churches. And the knowledge of the Son of God, is that possible today? Personal knowledge? To a mature man, is that possible today? Not the way the church is working, but if it worked right, it would be. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I think on Pentecost that happened. 
We should, should be preaching, praying, praying, praying for revival. Not the fake kind. Not the superficial, the hypocritical. We're talking about the real kind of thing where people really get convicted of sin and their life starts to change. Verse 14, as a result, following the following statement is a significant importance for every generation. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now I'm going to tell you that seminaries are a God thing. It's a good thing to learn the scriptures. But when they get, as they are, divided into their camps, and in every camp they have things pushed on people, which they then now accept as scripture, and it just divides the church, this is not good. This is not good. The issue at hand is the truth of the gospel. The doctrines of faith, or seeing Jesus Christ from a variety of different teachings, is the main point of verse 14. Unity is to be of the same mind, not let's agree to disagree. Not I'm going to give that to you and we can, we can join forces, but we're still in disagreement. That's not biblical. Oneness of mind, Philippians chapter 2, and all through the scripture is unity. Not the vision with hypocrisy. Saying we're one mind when we're not. The universal church should be of the same mind. Every difference in doctrine indicates an error on the part of everyone except the one firmly holding to the truth. There's only one. The narrow, the truth is narrow. It's not broad. And everybody can be believe whatever they want. No, that's not biblical. The truth is that singular. The truth is singular, and error should not be tolerated by any, by any, including, and first and foremost, the one holding it. Did you hear that? Error should never be tolerated by the one who's holding on to it. That's the problem. It's not one criticizing another who's standing in error. It's the one who's holding on to the error that's the problem. The first one, the first one first point here is that we repent and allow God to correct our errors. Then in verse 15, here's the conclusion of the whole thing. Verse 15 says, following this, everything I talked about, unity and maturity and all of this, verse 15 says, but, but, big but, speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. Get this. Hear this. Doctrine is not to be set aside as less important than love. The Apostle John made it very clear. I have no greater joy. No greater joy. This is the Apostle of love. This is the Apostle John. I have no greater joy than my children walk in love. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say love. He said that my children walk in the truth. The truth is the most loving thing you can ever do. Tell people the truth. Walk in the truth. is to walk in obedience. It's not to walk in error. So this goes out to every single person right now in verse 15. If you want to speak the truth in love, speak the truth. And all the people right now who are walking in error, you want to be loving, get rid of it. Give it up. Recognize you're walking in the error. I can't do it. I'm blind. Well, then you need Jesus. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. So all the people in all the church that are causing all the divisions, as they hold on to things that separate, those are the, pro those are the problem people. So whether it's baptism or tongues, whether it's free will or the sovereignty of God, and I think we've done a long list. Whatever it is, all the people who are in the wrong have to humble themselves and admit they're wrong, and then you'll have a unified church. Now, I know that sounds impossible, but if that sounds impossible, where's the faith? Where's the faith? Just last week, I mean, I saw Luke chapter 17 for the umpteen time in my prayer time. I spent like three to four hours in prayer, and in the midst of that prayer, I was in Luke 17, and I was contending with myself 
and I realized I had been interpreting Luke 17 wrong. Just dead wrong. And I had to go to before God once more, I don't know, a thousand times. I got it wrong. Doctrine's gotten wrong. Scripture gotten wrong. It's been the whole plight of my whole spiritual experience is to find out that I'm wrong. Study, read, pray, 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 I'm wrong. If you're not doing that, you're a problem. See, now I'm speaking like Paul. I'm speaking like the body. I'm speaking like, like, like Jesus. Speaking the truth in love. We had to grow up in all the aspects unto him. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You cut off parts of the body and you're hurting. You cut off groups of people and you just hone in on your denomination. And you know what? This will never happen. You're never going to be held together by every joint supplies, every individual, all the growth. Why? Because those other people are part of the body too. If they're regenerate, if they're born again, and now we've segregated ourselves into all these little packs, just like Paul starts to letter to Corinth, to the Corinth, to the Corinthian believers, and he says, I'm a Paul, I'm a Cephas, I'm of a Paul, all divided. And he has to come down with this sarcasm and rip into them, telling them you're dividing the body of Christ you're stopping the gospel message and you're not doing what you should be doing. And I say to the church today, give it up. Give it up in love. Give up your pride. Give up your boasting. Give up your denominations. Give up your errors. And then, then we as a people will be speaking the truth in love. Dear Heavenly Father, not a one of us, including me right now, because I'm the one doing the speaking, has the right to stand in judgment. Has the right to stand in judgment as God judges. Every single person, no matter what the tone of my voice or the spirit of this message or what I've said particularly, because it's all offensive, because it's meant to be. It's meant to shame people. It all comes from you. It doesn't come from me. I may be speaking like a man, but it doesn't come from me. I have no right to judge any denomination, any man, any pastor, any member in the church. I have done enough sin and enough error of my own, and I've been a part of the problem for going on, well, for over 50 years. I mean, to go back to my salvation experience, you're talking 53 years. And in all of that time, I have just had to grow. I have had to turn from error, from sin. I've had to turn from judgmental attitude. I plead with you for discernment. I've been praying for over a decade that I would end well. And the older I get and the closer I get to that end, the more I recognize compromise is not an option compromising as being coming effeminate and speaking to people like women should, it's not an option anymore. I have to speak to you, speak to the world as men do, are called to do. And after the, the sermon is over and after the, the attitude gets dismissed and after the judgment is over, it's just discernment for me. And it should be discernment for every pastor and every Christian who walks the earth. It should be about discerning right from wrong, turning from the wrong, living a righteous life, and not standing condemning anyone. The people who are, are set to go to hell, are, they're condemned by God. They're going to go by God. They're judged by God. They're not judged by themselves even. They're not judged by men. They're judged by you. And you are the one who send people to and you're the one who makes the judgments. So I confess, Lord, so far as I ever have or ever crossed the line from a discerning spirit to a judgmental, ungodly attitude, I confess that all is sin. 
And I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would keep anyone hearing this sermon from walking into sin. Whether it's to be an effeminate man, a manly woman, or to just reject it all and to just do, to live life in self-effort. I, I just pray, Lord, that you would deliver us all from such ungodliness. Make us an obedient church so that we might speak the truth in love. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.